Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Putting It Into Practice, Where Do S1P Receptors Modulators Fit? is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to Medical Minute 2, Putting It Into Practice, Where Do S1P Receptor Modulators Fit? This is the second in a two-part series called S1P Receptor Modulators in Ulcerative Colitis, an evidence-based, patient-centered approach to optimizing care. I'm Jordan Axelrad, and I'm an inflammatory bowel disease specialist at NYU Langone Health. Here are my disclosures. And here are today's learning objectives. We'll examine current and emerging S1P receptor modulators, their mechanisms of action, and pharmacodynamic properties. We'll then learn how to select optimal therapy for patients with ulcerative colitis based on clinical trial data, evidence-based guidelines, and shared decision-making. All right, so let's begin. Here are outcomes and limitations of current therapies in ulcerative colitis. So here we have the American Gastrological Association guidelines for the treatment of mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. And we're probably all very well aware of our therapies in the mesalamine class that are pretty effective for patients with mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. Um, We favor standard dose use, but of course, for patients who have suboptimal response, it's possible to increase that dose. And for patients who are refractory to oral mesalamines, we'll often add a course of prednisone or uh, budesonide MMX. Mesalamines can be given in a variety of administrations. Of course, there's oral, uh, there's rectal therapies as well, such as suppository and enema. And for patients who have very extensive colitis, There is good data that combination of oral plus rectal therapies provide uh, a a more uh, durable benefit than either alone. Uh, And there's also some specific considerations about this particular class of agents. So for patients who are in remission on sulfazalazine, who have prominent extraintestinal arthropathy, that sulfazalazine is a very reasonable drug to continue and does not require necessarily switching to oral mesalamine. Uh, Also, these are easy to take. They're once daily dosing for most of these drugs nowadays. And obviously, oral medications are highly convenient. Well, what about patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis? Um, Now, these guidelines, again, haven't been updated in a couple of years, which we'll get into. But uh, infliximab is preferred over adalimumab based on relative efficacy. Vetalizumab is also preferred over adalimumab based on relative efficacy, and this was based on the Varsity trial. Ustkinumab is effective, but not yet ranked in guidelines, although it is preferred based on data over uh, adalimumab or vetalizumab if patients have previously failed infliximab. Uh, JAK inhibitors are only approved in the United States for patients who have failed anti-TNF agents. And again, this is once again preferred over adalimumab or vetalizumab for previous TNF failures. And ozanamod, um, one of the newest agents on the block, is not yet uh, in our guidelines. And also upadacitinib, a um, selective JAK inhibitor, also has not yet made it into our guidelines, and, and we'll review some of these data. So our medications have adverse events. Um, corticosteroids 
of course, have the most and most significant adverse events. And these include bone loss, cataracts, diabetes, hypertension, mood changes, osteoporosis and osteopenia, um, and, and very rarely can cause AVN of various um, bones, but in particular of the hip. Uh, aminosalicylates or mesalamines also are associated with various adverse events. These tend to be mild, but can include things like nausea, vomiting, headache, and in a small proportion of patients can also lead to paradoxical worsening of colitis. In rare instances, mesalamines, aminosalicylates have been associated with interstitial nephritis and even pancreatitis very rarely. Immunomodulators, uh, such as 6-MP and azathioprine are associated with nausea, vomiting, um, hepatotoxicity, myelotoxicity, uh, opportunistic infections, and pancreatitis, and very rarely can be associated with lymphoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. Methotrexate, again, a drug not typically used in isolation in ulcerative colitis, but is associated with uh, essentially the same side effect profile, uh, with the exception of being uh, teratogenic um, in, in patients who are pregnant. So this is uh, contraindicated in women seeking pregnancy. All right, our biologics and small molecules also have side effects. Um, all of them, to some extent, are associated with an infection risk. For TNF inhibitors, there's also infusion and injection site reactions. And occasionally, patients can develop dermatologic complications such as psoriasiform, uh, dermatitis, and reactions. Very rarely, TNF inhibitors are associated with demyelination, exacerbation and heart failure, um, serious infections, lymphoma. Um, some population-based studies have demonstrated a link with melanoma, and in patients who have antibodies, they're at risk for lupus-like syndrome as well. Um, vetalizumab has been associated with upper respiratory tract infections and rarely infusion-related re uh, reactions. Ustkinumab um, similarly has been associated with um, nausea and vomiting during that IV induction and very rarely has been associated with posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or PRESS, um, questionable association with malignancies, particularly skin cancers, and possibly the subsequent development of psoriasis. Um, Rizinkizumab, very similar to ustekinumab, has a similar side effect profile, arthralgia, headache. Our small molecules also have a side effect profile. Ozanamod has been associated with upper respiratory tract infections and hepatotoxicity, and very rarely serious infections, um, reduced pulmonary function, hypertension, macular edema, um, elect, uh, um, bra bradyarrhythmias, and conduction abnormalities as well, which we'll review in this talk. And JAK inhibitors, tofacitinib and hepatocitinib, are also associated with uh, upper respiratory tract infections, um, occasionally elevated cholesterol levels and increased blood um, creatinine phosphokinase levels, and very rarely um, zoster infection, various malignancies, um, and even mortality and thrombosis and major cardiovascular events for those at risk. All right, so let's review in more detail the pathophysiology and clinical use of S1P receptor modulators in ulcerative colitis. So there are several targets for small molecules um, that are both approved and some under development. So the largest class uh, that we have available are actually JAK and TIC2 inhibitors. There is no TIC2 inhibitor yet approved in inflammatory bowel disease, but as far as JAK inhibitors, we have available tofacitinib and upadacitinib, um, which act at the epithelium, the intestinal lumen, to reduce JAK-SAT signaling and mitigate inflammation.
Um, a class under study include the PDE4 inhibitors, uh, which also help to reduce downstream inflammatory cascades um, uh, in the uh, epithelium and lamina propria. Here at the bottom of the figure, we see a blood vessel where most of our anti-leukocyte trafficking agents, which include both biologics and small molecules, uh, work. So here we see alpha-4, beta-7. This is the target of vetalizumab, although there are oral small molecules that are also under study focusing on various integrins at the endothelial layer to prevent uh, leukocyte trafficking. Um, and then, of course, uh, while not necessarily in the lamina propria here, but lymph nodes, which contribute to the inflammatory milieu in an ulcerative colitis, where S1P receptors and S1P and their modulators, such as ozanamod and atrazomod, which we'll review, function to reduce uh, lymph, uh, lymphocyte trafficking out of lymph nodes. All right, so let's review in more detail what S1P receptor modulators are and how they function. So in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, there are higher levels of sphingosine 1-phosphate, which are um, lipid uh, inflammatory biomediators in the inflamed gut. So they're basically a byproduct of active inflammation. And the interaction between S1P and that S1P receptor, that gradient of inflammation of the levels of S1P promote egress of lymphocytes from the lymph node. So if there are higher levels of S1P in the gut, that gradient is sensed and S1P receptors help egress lymphocytes from lymph nodes to that site of inflammation, to that site of higher levels of S1P. S1P receptor agonists that function on various receptors can help to block that lymphocyte egress. So we see there are five major classes of S1P receptors. S1P1 is what we think has the greatest um, anti-inflammatory component. And S1P1 helps to basically block that egress of lymphocytes from lymph nodes. S1P5 um, is detected in various uh, aspects of the heart and on the conduction system, which we'll review. But S1P receptors are sort of ubiquitous in various um, organs and, and sites in the body. And so the selectivity of various S1P receptor modulators is critically important, not only to its mechanism of action, but also its side effect profile, such as with S1P receptor modulators that we've seen in uh, clinical use, cardiotoxicity, uh, specifically conduction abnormalities, and ophthalmic toxicity, again, which we'll review. So let's talk a little bit more detail about the drugs that are available and under study and the distribution and function of various S1P uh, receptors. So ozanamod uh, is selective for S1P1 and S1P5 with minimal to no activity on the other major subtypes of S1P receptors. And so again, this accounts for its, its likely efficacy where it prevents lymphocyte migration, uh, but also maybe associated with some of its side effect profile as it relates to S1P5 um, on the heart, where it can affect conduction as well. Uh, etrazomide, which is an S1P receptor modulator under study in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and we'll review some of this data, is selective for S1P1, 4, and 5. Uh, amicelamide is selective for S1P1 and 5, similar 
to ozanamod. And just important to keep in mind that these various receptors have different distribution and function, but it's likely S1P1 that is responsible for the main mechanism of anti-inflammatory effect by the prevention of lymphocyte trafficking. Okay. Given the distribution of the receptors that we just reviewed, there's various adverse events that could potentially be associated with clinical use of an S1P receptor modulator. Those include LFT enzyme uh, abnormalities, uh, elevations, macular edema, um, cardiotoxicity, in particular conduction abnormalities, which we've reviewed given S1P1 and 5 receptors on the heart, neurologic abnormalities, including PRESS, uh, pulmonary effects, because there are some S1P receptors in the lung, and then, of course, the direct impact on lymphocyte counts. So it is expected that patients on S1P receptor modulators may have a reduction in their absolute circulating lymphocytes. It's likely that not necessarily directly correlated to lymphocyte number, but perhaps lymphocyte function has been associated with various uh, infectious risks. And in particular for S1P receptor modulators, and we'll review some of these side effects, that's uh, varicella uh, or herpes zoster infections or shingles. That's probably the most common. Uh, but of course, that the lymphocytes tightly linked with um, uh, combating uh, uh, infection, the reduction of that may be associated with an infection risk. All right, so let's review the True North study, which was the phase three that established the efficacy and safety of ozanamod in moderate to severely active ulcerative colitis. This was a multi-center placebo-controlled a randomized phase three study. Patients were divided into two major cohorts. Cohort one, patients were randomized to placebo or ozanamod and then evaluated at week 10, the end of induction, and rolled over into maintenance. For patients in cohort two, this was a non-randomized arm, open label where all patients received ozanamod and then were continued into a maintenance phase after the end of induction at week 10. And the primary uh, objective of this study was to measure clinical response and clinical remission in addition to symptomatic response and remission during the 10-week induction period. So these are the induction data. Uh, here again, we can see the primary endpoint clinical remission at week 10. Uh, secondary endpoints included clinical response, endoscopic improvement, so that change in the Mayo endoscopic score, and then mucosal healing, which was a um, an index that incorporated histologic improvement using the Gabot score. So here you can see uh, all patients on the, the graph on the left, looking at the efficacy at week 10, where patients who received ozanamide um, had higher rates of clinical remission, uh, clinical response, endoscopic improvement, and mucosal healing compared to placebo-treated patients. When patients were divided by prior TNF inhibitor use at week 10, you could see that the, uh, the differences between drug and placebo were much more modest, whereas those who were treatment naive without prior TNF uh, failure had a much more robust response as it relates to clinical remission, clinical response, endoscopic improvement, and mucosal healing. Looking more specifically at the induction data and cohorting patients based on their biologic exposure history. Here you can see that for patients who were biologic naive, uh, compared to those who received one 
or two or more biologics, that clinical remission was much more likely to be achieved in those who are biologic naive. Similarly, and likely more important in an induction trial, is clinical response. And here you could see that those who received two or more biologics had a much more muted response to ozanamod, whereas those who are biologic naive had a much better response to ozanamod compared to placebo. So again, the clinical utility of the drug, in particular here based on induction data, seems to really favor those who are biologic naive or failed just one previous biologic therapy. These are the data demonstrating symptomatic remission through week 10 on a essentially a weekly basis. So here we could see that, um, and again, symptomatic remission is a much more difficult to achieve endpoint in an induction trial. And you could see that by week four in all patients, we're starting to see a separation between drug and placebo. And then of course, this seems to be maintained. Whereas um, if you look at the symptomatic remission rates stratified by drug exposures, uh, of patients, TNF-naive versus TNF-exposed, the efficacy and rapidity is much better for patients who are TNF-naive. So here you're starting to see that separation, even at week two, that patients who are TNF-naive are demonstrating symptomatic remission um, much earlier on. Whereas those who are TNF-exposed prior to receiving ozanamide, that that separation between uh, symptomatic remission in drug versus placebo takes many more weeks. So we're really not seeing clinically significant separations until week eight. Um, and this is very important for managing patients because you don't want to say, okay, by week six, uh, in a patient who's been exposed to many agents, you know, we're not necessar necessarily achieving symptomatic remission. It may be that patients require more time on drugs, specifically for those with previous drug exposures, specifically TNF. And these are the data on symptomatic response. So symptomatic response, again, it's an easier bar to achieve. And here you could see that certainly by week two, we're starting to see a difference in all patients. And that's much more robust for patients who are TNF naive. But we're also seeing some separation for TNF exposed. And again, that just that symptomatic response, a little bit of an easier bar to achieve is much more apparent by week four in TNF exposed. Again, just more um, data to underscore that for patients who are previously exposed to various agents, you may need to wait longer to assess the response to ozanamod. All right. And these are the maintenance data. So this is the maintenance data from True North examining efficacy at week 52. And again, in all patients across the board, you can see that patients on ozanamod had um, improved uh, rates of clinical remission, response, endoscopic improvement, corticosteroid-free remission, and mucosal healing compared to those who received placebo. Um, and then when patients, again, were divided by their previous TNF exposures, you can see that, again, the drug was more efficacious in those who did not have previous TNF exposure. So you can see um, that those who were biologic naive, and in particular for TNF agents, that the response was much more robust, um, whereas those who were previous failures, again, had slightly lower rates of remission response and improvement. Uh, but again, the drug did demonstrate efficacy, just slightly less robust. All right. Now, equally as important as the efficacy, of course, are the adverse events and, and what was reported during the trial. So um, for patients who received ozanamide, uh, Adverse events that were common included LFT elevations, particularly ALT, headache, 
arthralgia, nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infections, uh, and then more LFT abnormalities. Um, rarely, uh, there were there was one case of anemia, and there were uh, there was only one case of UC exacerbation. Of course, in the placebo group, there were many more uh, UC exacerbations. Again, demonstrating that ozanamide uh, is efficacious. Um, there were several uh, serious adverse events, but they were equally experienced between ozanamide and placebo. Um, and there were more adverse events that led to drug discontinuation in the placebo group. But again, the most common ones were really that LFT abnormality um, and headache. And those are really the ones that most patients experience in clinical use. All right. So moving away from ozanamide, let's review some of the existing data on etrasamide. So remember that etrasamide is a um, selective S1P14 and 5 receptor modulator. Uh, there are several studies ongoing in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, OASIS and ulcerative colitis, um, elevate in ulcerative colitis and cultivate in Crohn's disease. This drug differs from ozanamide in that it has a much shorter half-life, but has a very similar side effect profile to ozanamide. And again, demonstrated here, these are some induction data. Now you could see that there's improvement in Mayo scores, improvement in endoscopic um, uh, values, and also patients in clinical remission. And um, demonstrating that etrasamide, in particular at the two milligram dose, had the best efficacy data. Um, and for patients who uh, had treat through on etrasamide 2 milligrams, uh, again, that this sort of response was, was, was really maintained as well. All right, so let's review some of the real-life requirements that are required before we initiate S1P receptor modulators in practice. So because of the lack of data in patients who become pregnant, uh, patients should not be pregnant when they initiate therapy. Um, vaccinations are important, and in particular for varicella and shingles. Uh, and, and this is critically important, especially if, if providing the varicella vaccine, that should be done at least one month prior to initiating therapy. Uh, patients need to be monitored for active infection before initiating therapy. Similar with all of our other agents, we're checking CBC and LFTs. The major differentiator with S1P receptor modulators is really the EKG requirement. And that's in particular to look for heart block. And so this is really the only um, requirement prior to initiating therapy that really differs from our other agents, biologic and small molecules. Uh, patients still are required to have negative TB testing. Um, there should be some monitoring for patients, in particular things like blood pressure, uh, prior to initiating therapy to make sure patients aren't hypertensive. And then in those who have a history of uveitis, macular edema, or diabetic retinopathy, an eye exam is also required prior to initiating therapy. What about during or after therapy? So uh, it's recommended that women continue contraception for at least three months after therapy discontinuation. Uh, like most of our therapies, live vaccines are relatively contraindicated. Patients, again, need to be monitored for infections. Similarly to our other agents, but perhaps a little bit more um, uh, intense screening regimen looking at LFTs are required. It's recommended blood pressure is monitored periodically. Uh, there still should be annual skin, skin exams, uh, in particular to look for um, skin cancers, and that's universal throughout our therapies. And given the half-life, which we talked about how this differentiates between ozanamide and atrazamide, 
Uzanamon has a very long half-life. And so um, that's important for clinicians to know that the effects of Ozanamod on absolute lymphocyte count, counts on lymphocyte function may persist uh, for longer than a couple of weeks or even a month or two after therapy cessation. Okay, so now I'm going to review very briefly how I approach selecting positioning and the sequencing of therapies. So therapy choice is not just what I tell a patient they need to take, right? There's individual characteristics of a patient. There's the efficacy data. There's the disease characteristics of a given patient. And then there's the safety. And all of this comes into play when selecting the appropriate therapy for an individual patient. And as we'll review, the decision to start an individual therapy is something that's shared between the healthcare provider and the healthcare team and patients. So these are some data prior to um, the uh, data on ozanamide looking at ranking of therapies in those who are biologic naive with moderate to severely active ulcerative colitis. And this is a special statistical study called uh, Surface Under the Cumulative Ranking, but basically helps us to rank based on all available data in a meta-analysis on what's the right sequencing of therapies. So here we can see that infliximab had the best data for endoscopic improvement and clinical remission, followed by vedolizumab, um, and also perhaps golimumab, and then ustekinumab and tofacitinib. Adalimumab had the least uh, uh, relative improvement in endoscopic uh, appearance and rates of clinical remission compared to the other agents in moderate to severely active ulcerative colitis. And this really gels with practice. What about second-line therapy? This is the same study. Again, here we can see that in those with prior TNF exposure, Ustkinumab and tofacitinib had the highest ranking in efficacy. But again, this is prior to the availability of upadacitinib and ozanamide. Um, looking at side effect profile, infection risk is lowest with vedolizumab, which is also very important when selecting agents. All right. So these sort of trends in positioning, again, I just reviewed, we use some of these network meta-analyses, which are indirect comparisons to calculate that ranking. So for biologic naive induction of remission, um, infliximab and vedolizumab are probably the optimal first choices based on this data. For maintenance of remission, doesn't seem to be any difference in agents. For TNF exposed, tofa and ustekinumab seem to be better than vedolizumab. And for adverse events, vedolizumab and ustekinumab seemed to be the best. What about integrating all of our agents together? So this is a very large network meta-analysis, again, seeking to rank drugs. And this is comparing trial data to each other and also whatever clinical data is available in the literature to rank agents based on endoscopic improvement and clinical remission, basically their overall efficacy. And again, similar to what we already reviewed in previous studies, for induction of endoscopic improvement, infliximab was superior to adalimumab, vedolizumab, golimumab, and etrolizumab, again, not, not approved yet. Um, ozanamod and tofacitinib were all superior to uh, adalimumab, and upadacitinib was superior to all. And this is for induction of endoscopic improvement. For safety, vedolizumab was best, whereas upadacitinib and ozanamod ranked highest. So in thinking about this safety pyramid of IBD therapies, this is maybe a, an older viewpoint of the safety of various agents, but we can sort of uh, assume that vedolizumab is safest where steroids are the least safe, and very likely ozanamod and upadacitinib sort of fall in this intermediary range, whereas vedolizumab and ustekinumab are safest, 
and steroids and combo anti-TNF therapy with an immunomodulator are likely the least safe. All right. So just sort of in the final few moments, talking about the positioning of therapies and sort of my overall approach and what I stick to with patients. For folks who are a bit older, I tend to favor ustekinumab or vetalizumab. For patients who are very sick, I often will favor infliximab. For patients with cancer histories, again, I'll often favor ustekinumab and vetalizumab. For those who are pregnant, uh, TNF inhibitors, ustekinumab or vetalizumab have the best data for safety. For those who are more of the sort of mild to moderate disease, I prefer vetalizumab or ozanamide, especially for those who are steroid responsive and biologic naive. For those with lots of extraintestinal manifestations, and in particular arthropathy, I favor anti-TNF agents and JAK inhibitors. And for those who have previously failed the TNF inhibitor, based on some of this ranking data, JAK inhibitors really have the best efficacy. All right, so let's review um, our case. Uh, and this is a 22-year-old patient that we mentioned in one of the pre-survey questions, uh, no medical history, presenting to me with eight weeks of diarrhea, urgency, and occasional hematochesia. Of note, the patient had an appendectomy at age 18. Patient has a, uh, reports a sibling with ulcerative colitis. The patient works in finance um, and takes no medications. And here you could see the endoscopic appearance, and I'd probably grade this as a Mayo 2. Um, that uh, you could see that there's definitely some areas of erythema and ulceration uh, and changes in the vascular pattern. Um, otherwise, is, is not rip-roaringly severe, but certainly is not normal. And again, as I mentioned, you know, agent selection is not just up to me. It's a conversation and a decision that we make together as a healthcare team with the patients. And that shared decision-making is associated with improved patient satisfaction, response. Um, and it's very important that whenever we select a drug, patients are willing to take that drug. Okay, so let's revisit the patient from Medical Minute One and hear about his disease state improvement. My life now with my current therapy is great. I am leading a pretty normal life. I no longer have to think about when I'm going out where the restrooms are, you know, in a certain place, I, I can go out and eat foods that I haven't been able to eat in a long time, have drinks uh, like I was prior to being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So I feel that I'm pretty well controlled at this point and I'm living a pretty normal life. My healthcare provider was really great about involving me in selecting a treatment. We definitely looked at the benefits and the risks of each treatment, as well as the data to support uh, the overall remission rates in patients who have ulcerative colitis. So it was really important for me to be involved in that decision-making process to not only find a drug that worked, but a drug that was cost-effective, convenient for me to use, um, and really help, uh, help me make the best decision for myself based on all the available evidence and uh, information that was out there. Now that my symptoms have improved with my current treatment, I'm able to get out uh, outside, enjoy life, you know, hang out with friends, visit with family, go for bike rides, do things that I did prior to being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis without having to think about, you know, all of the things that come along with the disease, all the negative impacts of my life. I'm able to lead a pretty normal life and really look after myself and take care of myself in a way that I was not able to do with prior therapies. Okay. 
And some final thoughts about S1P receptor modulators, practical implications. They're really best positioned as first-line advanced therapy for biologically naive, moderate patients. If they're being used as second-line advanced therapies, efficacy seems to be similar in those who failed one biologic. If there's multiple advanced therapy failures, the efficacy of this drug is decreased. They may still respond, but the time to response may be longer, as we saw in some of our symptomatic remission, symptomatic response data for induction. Ozanamod has a very manageable safety profile that requires appropriate selection of patients, and the major differentiator here is the cardiac uh, toxicities that require a screening EKG to rule out heart block prior to therapy initiation. That's really the only differentiator. All right, and thank you for participating. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.